Okay. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17. Let us hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Pergamon write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the, of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you and war against you with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some hidden manna, and I will give him white, a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you as we come to the end of another uh, Lord's Day. That This evening we've gathered to, to worship you, to sing praises to you, to come before the throne of grace with confidence because we know you hear us, because you bid us to cast our cares upon you. So we thank you for the privilege of being here tonight. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be within each one of us, teaching us and where necessary, correcting us and training us. Uh, to become uh, the men of God and the women of God that you've called us to be. So, Lord, uh, be pleased with us tonight as we gather. Hear our prayers in the name of Jesus and teach us from your word, we pray. Amen. Well, this is the uh, third of the seven churches in Revelation. Uh, the first one was the uh, church of Ephesus. And one of the things that stood out about Ephesus initially was that they held very firmly to sound doctrine. It, it talked about the uh, Ephesian elders uh, wearing themselves out, as it were, to, to protect the church and, and make sure that sound doctrine was being taught in the church. But as we know, ultimately, uh, that did not continue to happen. In fact, as you, uh, as you look at places like Judges chapter 2 and and also from what John has to say about the work in Ephesians, in Ephesus, he indicated that by the time Paul had left, and that's recorded for us in the book of Acts, and what a traumatic thing, I think, for the church in Ephesus for him to leave because he was used so powerfully there, along with others like Apollos' teaching and, uh, and others uh, that were there. But when John, who was exiled to Patmos, evidently found out that most of that had left. There wasn't that commitment to, uh, to the Word of God. There wasn't that love for the God. It has waned somewhat over the period of time. And so the result of that was that the church in Ephesus no longer existed after a period of time. The Lord picked up his lampstand and he moved it. 
it wasn't the end of the church. It was a blessing for the, a new church that was going to be used, but that location would not have uh, a church. In fact, as you look at all seven churches uh, where they were, pretty much there are none there today uh, because they did not heed the teachings in the, uh, of our Lord and, uh, and the Bible. So anyway, uh, the first mark, we talked about the marks of the church. Mark of the church is the faithful preaching of the Word of God, the proper administration of the sacraments, and discipline. But in, in, in the text themselves, you find other things that will describe the church, and that's important for us to under, understand. Another mark for the church in Ephesus was love initially. They had it for at least a, a generation, but uh, it left thereafter. And then the second mark we found in, uh, in Smyrna, which is the mark of suffering. They suffered greatly. And today, we come to the third mark of the church, and the mark of the church in Pergamon is, a, is the mark of truth. It's interested in truth, because truth is so important. In fact, uh, Jesus said he came to testify to the truth. Uh, he says, you're sanctified by the truth. And he, and he even says, thy word is truth. And then he goes on to say that I am the truth, the word, I'm, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So truth is very important. You have it in this church. Don't let it go. It's one of the most important things. You have the love of Christ. Don't let that wane. You may be open to suffering. That's part of being called as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow Christ. And the way of following Christ oftentimes is a way of suffering. And now he speaks about truth in Pergamon. I think it's important, really, and I need to move a little bit from this. Uh, so we have a third mark. And I would submit to you that uh, a true and living church must always hold to the truth. The scriptures, the word of God, beginning Genesis 1 and ending in Revelation 22. So that's a mark that we're going to look at tonight. Truth, truth. In Pergamon, uh, it's kind of interesting. The, the Christians suffered a lot in the other two churches, the previous two. But there's some suffering of the Christians and some suffering for those who are oppressing the Christians uh, tonight. And as we're going to look at Pergamon. But like so many other places, they had built a temple, uh, and Caesar, Emperor Caesar, uh, Caesar Augustus was worshiped there. They brought, uh, I guess he had a bust, and they offered uh, uh, things to, to, uh, uh, to the Caesar. And also they had, uh, well, Caesar Augustus it was, uh, and they offered. Uh, um, offered offerings to him. And then Pergamon uh, had a lot of trade guilds, uh, a lot of unions. And those, those were places like that doing things like making wool, uh, linen workers, garment workers, leather workers, tanneries, and also uh, pottery uh, makers uh, in that particular place. So unions, just like unions, I don't know about here, I think they're pretty strong here. They're pretty strong in the States, and sometimes they control things. And the unions there in Pergamon were controlled by these union and guild workers uh, that I just mentioned. And they, they really demanded uh, that the people follow them very diligently, go to offer uh, 
certain uh, uh, things to uh, the gods, as it were, um, certain feasts that they had. They were to partake in the, in the eating. They were also to partake in the aftermath of a lot of sexual immorality. It was a common practice among the guilds and the unions at that particular time. So if those Christians that lived there, and that's described as a place where Satan had his home in Pergamon, and so you have these Christians, they're, they're surrounded by all these guilds and all these people worshiping other gods and practicing immorality, and in the midst of them was the Christian community. And when they did not participate with the unions, whether eating at their feast or, or practicing immorality with them, uh, they found that they lost their job. One of the things that uh, the Satan uses oftentimes, uh, as we see in the Bible in, in Hebrews chapter, chapter 10, uh, so I trust everything's all right. Let's keep moving. <laughs> uh, but uh, so one of the things that the world used to, uses to inflict upon the Christians some pain for not following after their ways is the loss of a job. And a loss of a job is, is very important. People are dependent on a job, not only take care of themselves, but take care of their families uh, to live and, and such. So a lot of these people, these Christians in Pergamon lost their jobs. For one thing, they also uh, lost their trade. If they made pottery, they could no longer make any pottery. So, uh, uh, and other things, whatever they did, whatever skills that they had, they were not able to use those because they would not uh, do business with one another. So, so oftentimes uh, Christians lost their jobs and they were also publicly ostracized as well. It's a, it's a difficult time for them. So uh, uh, challenging times, you might say. And so in the midst of this, Satan is at work and he's still at work today. We see the same thing. We see that, that thing of losing your job public humiliation, uh, taking your home in, in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, putting you in jail, and even ultimately killing you. And that same playbook plays out today in many countries. Lose your job. You're socially ostracized. You're not a part of the community. You're not willing, you're not willing to participate with us in all the things that we enjoy doing in the flesh. And so that sort of thing's that sort of thing continues to happen even today. I think in some degree, uh, certainly in America, it's happening on a small scale, but it could be a larger scale unless things uh, turn uh, in a different direction, unless the Lord sovereignly intervenes in that particular country. So the charge against the church is that it participated in both the uh, uh, work of Balaam and also the Nicolaitans. And we talked about the Nicolaitans, I think, early in one of the early churches. Uh, and so here, the same thing is, is coming up. They're charged with participating in it. And, and I think most of us probably, having read the Old Testament, looking at Balaam and Balak, Balak, uh, he asked Balaam to place a curse on the people of God prior to their entering into the uh, land that God had promised them through Abraham. Um, so they, uh, they, they did that, and we know a little bit more about Balaam and uh, Balak there. 
uh, Balaam was supposed to place a curse on them, but every time he spoke, he spoke a blessing to the people of Israel. God changed his, his tune, changed the, changed the phrases, changed the words, and rather than a curse, there was a blessing. And, and so ultimately he said, well, that's, that's not working, so we'll try something else. And uh, talks about Balaam being rather, uh, rather uh, greedy, uh, I think in First Peter, and so what he does, he comes up with another plan. We'll have the Moabite women seduce the Israelite men, and we'll win that way so that perhaps they won't be able to enter the land, and if they do, they're going to be corrupted completely in worshiping uh, uh, Balaam, and, uh, not Balaam, but Mo, uh, some of the other gods of the age. But, and then the Nicolaitans also it was almost anything goes for them. They didn't want any restraints upon their life. They wanted, if they wanted to enjoy sexual in encounters with people of many different people, they could, whatever they wanted to do. No restraints, take away all the laws of God, take away the moral law, and they just wanted to live a life of, of immorality. Sort of like the Epicureans, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Whatever you wanna do between now and that day and that time, do. You do all the pleasurable things that you want to do. So that was a problem. It was a problem because some of the Christians joined them in that process from the church. And the problem with the church there, it did not discipline the members of the church. It allowed them to continue to be around the Nicolaitans and practice the sorts of things that they practiced. And, and so discipline was missing. And I would say probably in the church today, generally, worldwide, certainly in the U.S., there's a lack of discipline in the church. Uh, in fact, if a church tries to exercise discipline, which it ought to, uh, it's, it's frowned upon. People, people don't want to hear that. But I shared a few times with some people today, uh, discipline is important. I, I was in, involved with a couple of presbyteries where uh, pastors had uh, committed adultery. And on one, one presbytery where a pastor, two pastors in a row had committed, uh, uh, what's the word I want to use? They, pa what? Plagiarism. Plagiarism, yeah, thank you. It's been a long day. Uh, but plagiarism. Uh, and, you know, some people say, well, you know, they download those sermons, they present those sermons, they did a little bit of work, but it's not their work. They didn't do the necessary work that every pastor ought to do, which is to have an understanding of the historical, uh, grammatical context. What happened in history? What is he talking about in history? What is the, what is the, uh, uh, the grammar and, and, and doing the hard work of exegetical work to put together a sermon to deliver. It's their work. It's not anyone else's work, but some people download sermons and present them as their work, which is really lying, stealing, uh, being just absolutely dishonest. And so uh, two people that I know were removed from the pastorate because they downloaded sermons and presented them as their work. Um, and most of, uh, I mean, I used to get things all the time, you know, you download, download this sermon, download this sermon. I never download any sermon. If, if it's not the work of the pastor, it ought not be presented. It's a lie. But the evil, and most of, I think, the sermons that I had heard people talking about were kind of rather uh, 
um, not well thought out anyway, not presented uh, well. How could, how could it? Because it wasn't biblical. So uh, some of these things took place. Uh, so that it's important because the Nicolaitans and the Christians in the church there, they participated with them and they ate food offered to idols and they practiced immorality with the others. Uh, sort of like as you read in, uh, in Jude, in Jude uh, 4, certain godless men chose the grace of God uh, into a uh, turned the grace of God into a license for immorality and uh, denial of Christ. In Galatians chapter 5, Christ has set us free. Do not let, it, let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. And in Romans chapter 6, just a part of it, what shall we say then? Shall we sin that grace may abound? Uh, they failed to mention the rest of it. Absolutely not. We shouldn't do that. But sometimes people take that liberty. And, that, and certainly uh, with Calvin in Geneva, the libertines, those who wanted to live the way that they wanted to live for six days a week, wanted to rush in and take, take the Lord's Supper on Sunday to assuage their guilt from living a rather uh, liberal, wicked lifestyle. And uh, John Calvin said, Basically, he didn't say this, these are my words, over my dead body, will you be able to take the Lord's Supper because you've lived like a, you know, like a, a heathen the other six days of the week. So the Lord's Supper is important and some people wanted to get it because if they, they could live the way that they wanted to, take the Lord's Supper there in, Calv in Calvin's time and then go on and do the same thing the next day or the rest of the week and then wait to take Sunday, take it again, have their sins assuaged and, and move on with their life and enjoy the pleasures of the flesh as they would see it. So the church in Pergamon evidently tolerated this behavior. Again, not, not taking the necessary discipline uh, for doing that. Uh, so a church needs to exercise discipline. The PCA does. I hope it doesn't stop. Uh, and I'm sure the Orthodox Presbyterian Church does as well. Uh, I don't know about some of these other churches, whether they exercise discipline or not. I, I just don't know. Maybe I don't hear about it, so I'm kind of, uh, I kind of believe it's not really exercised faithfully. Another thing, there's a judgment that comes upon the people of God there in Pergamon if they fail to repent. If they fail to repent. God does exercise judgment. You see that in the Old Testament. I mean, uh, nations uh, coming against Israel are often dis uh, destroyed. Uh, Israel is, ex you know, God exercises Israel on his own people by sending them into exile. And, and many of the, uh, for, in for instance, in Babylon, when the, uh, uh, in Jerusalem, when the Babylonians came in, I mean, it was, it was terrible. And, and later on in AD 70, when the Romans came in, it was really terrible in terms of what happened to the people of God. So God does exercise judgment both upon his people and certainly upon those who are unregenerate. And, uh, and he's, he's right to do that. So here, unless they repent, they're going to experience uh, judgment from God. In fact, he says, I will come to you quickly and fight against you to the Christians there who are living a life of immorality, practicing 
worshiping other gods too and, and doing all those things. He says, I'm going to come and fight against you. Can you imagine fighting against the Lord God Almighty who when he speaks, he creates everything. He holds all things together. And all of a sudden he comes and says, unless you change your ways, I'm going to come and fight against you. If that's not terrifying, you would think people would repent having heard that. But he, he will exercise his, he exercises his mercy and his grace, but he's also a God of justice, and, and he will exercise that. Uh, one of the things that uh, I have written in here in my notes is, Christians need to be very careful because we have a tendency to be able to rationalize, rationalize whatever we want to. We'll say you know, like three things. Ah, we're only human. You know, we have feelings. We have desires. Maybe we need to express those desires the way that we want to. Now, a second one would be the Lord does not expect us to be so, so very perfect. Uh, not at all. He doesn't re expect us or doesn't expect much out of us, I should say. And thirdly, Christ is not, um, not unreasonable. He knows we're weak. Have you heard those things before? I'm only human, only fleshly. God won't hold, me, uh, hold that against me because, you know, everybody does it, so it probably won't hurt too much. But no, those are all wrong, absolutely wrong. We are human. But now we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, filled by the Spirit of God. We have the Word of God that teaches us how to live, and God calls us to live in that way. Look at the laws of God, follow the laws of God's, God, be blessed and, God, and be faithful, and God will bless you. Turn away from the law of God, and God will experience, and you will experience a judgment that comes from God. It is fair. It's not a question of fairness. It's a question of right and wrong. We are to obey God and, be, and we'll be blessed and disobey God, especially to the extreme like this, and have God fighting against you, which is a very, very bad position to be in. So the scriptures teach us that Jesus hates this sort of teaching. In fact, I think it's at the end of Psalm 139, when, when uh, David is writing there. Do I not hate those who hate God? Do we hate those who are opposed to God? And yet God hates sin. And so it's important for us to understand some of the things that we find in Scripture that we may not understand and maybe we've never heard of before, but Jesus hates the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Uh, he hates sin. He calls, he calls the church to repent of their sins, uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and live a life that is in accord with Holy Scripture. Um, you see the Balaamites in particular. Uh, you see how in Numbers... This is where Balaam and Balak and uh, all, the, all the things that the Balaamites wanted to do and did do. This is a judgment of God upon them in verse chapter 25. Chapter 25. 
one of these days I'm going to get a little bit more light up here. I'll be able to see maybe a little bit more clearly. While, while Israel lived in Shittim, people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to, so Israel yoked himself to Baal at Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them. Take all of the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those men who have yoked themselves to Baal, Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses, in the sight of the whole congregation and the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced him, both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague over the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000 people. God hates sin, unrepentant sins, people who worship other gods and practice such evil. And then I'll read just a little bit more. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give him a covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for God and made atonement for the people of Israel. The name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, the chief of the father's house belonging to the Samanites. And the name of the Midianite woman was killed was Gazbi and the daughter of Zur, who was a tribal head of the father's house of Midian. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you and their wiles with which, you, which they beguiled you in the manner of Peor and in the manner of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, his sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. A lot of deaths, 24,000 by the plague. Strike the Midianites down. Strike the men who had relations with the Moabite women and others. Strike them down. Kill them. I hate sin. I hate false worship. I hate people following after Satan. So there's a, a real danger there. And so this was a warning to the church in Pergamon. Stop. Stop what you're doing. Stop eating meat offered to idols. Stop having immoral actions with people of a different faith group. Stop it. Pretty plain, pretty clear. So it's important, I think, for us to see a couple of things here. A verbal condemnation is not 
all that God offers. I think as I read that text, it's more than a verbal, you're doing wrong, change. After a period of time, it's actually, he's bringing war against the unregenerate, the unbelievers, those who are aligned themselves with the evil one and do the practices that the evil one wants them to do, following after the Nicolaitans and after uh, what happened with Balaam and Balak. So it's not just a verbal warning that he gives to us and condemns that. So what he is saying here is that those who persist in worldly practices, he will carry out his sentence. Listen to Galatians chapter 5. See if I can turn over there quickly. Galatians chapter 5. Um, Okay. I should have marked that. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. This is what uh, Paul writes to the Galatians. All right. 19 through 21. I'll, I'll read here. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep from you, keep you from doing things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you will not. You are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident: sexual immorality, immaturity, impunity, impurity sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, dis uh, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and, flame, and things like this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You see that list of, of evil that is, that is seen here? Those people will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Some of them may think, oh, well, I can do what I want to do, and perhaps I'll go to church occasionally, and maybe I've made sort of a profession of faith at some point in time in my life, maybe early on, but after all, I'm probably going to live a long life, and I need to live the life that I really want to enjoy, experience all the fleshly desires, and then when I die, everything will be all right, I'll go to heaven. And, and Christ and, and, and Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, no, you're not going to heaven. You're actually going to hell. You cannot live like that. Sexual immorality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, a long list of things. And, th and um, that's, a, that's a pretty... Um, pretty heavy truth that he's given us there. A lot of people don't want to hear it, but if they don't hear it, they won't go to heaven, they'll go to hell if they continue their practices. He'll bring the sword of the Spirit against them. Uh, I think in the, in the last thing, 
the commendation and the promise to those who overcome. So not all Christians there gave in to the fleshly desires of eating meat offered to idols and practicing sexual immorality. Not all of them did. He says, he says in verse 13, those who hold fast my name and did not obey the others, he says, and you held to the truth and preserved it and spared and, and, and spread the news around, he commends them for their portion and their work in the church in Pergamon. Just as love was really emphasized in Ephesians and, and, uh, and uh, truth is being emphasized here. One of the writers said, some want to make love, love paramount. And I think we see that in a lot of liberal churches in our day. They want to say, we just need to love each other. We just need to get along and don't, don't ruffle anyone's feathers or anything like that. Doctoral, doctrinal issues we can put to the side uh, and everything will be all right. We can just get along together. And then there's others who hold to truth and hold to, to solid doctrine, uh, biblical truth. Uh, sometimes they become so dogged, dogged in their zeal for God they, they're very harsh and bitter toward people who are not in the same mindset at that particular time. And one writer says this, love becomes sentimental if it's not strengthened by truth. Truth can become very hard if it's not softened by love. You see that? That's, that's important. Sometimes, I would say probably some in the Reformed community are, are pretty hard on others because they don't believe actually the same thing all the time. Maybe they believe part of the Reformed faith, but not all of it. Some, sometimes we try to, try to push it on people some, but we don't want to do the other either. I think the model for us as Christians is the model of Christ. I remember in John chapter 4 when he comes to the woman at the well. Uh, she's had five husbands, I think, and the one she's living with her now is not her husband. Jesus doesn't blast her because of her immorality. He talks to her about there's another place to worship and another person to worship. You're worshiping a false god, but Jesus, in speaking to her kindly and lovingly and with, with a great deal of, uh, well, kindness and love, she comes to believe. She didn't have to be convinced of the five points of Calvinism at one time. She didn't have to do that. But Jesus spoke to her gently. In fact, I think probably he spoke to everyone gently except for the scribes and the Pharisees, which he pronounced a series of curses upon them. And I'm sure the scribes and the Pharisees, as you look at Matthew chapter 23, when the Romans came in, the scribes and the Pharisees were probably um, judged accordingly by an outside force. But it was promised that they were under the curse of the Almighty because of their false teaching to the people of Israel. So, is, uh, so it's important for us. So the situation in Pergamon is well known. So truth does matter. In fact, I've got, a, I've got some references here. John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John chapter 8, 
If you hold to my teaching, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. In John 18, Jesus says, I testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So what does Christ love? He loves the truth. Christ loves the truth. He loves it when the, sp the truth is spoken, and he is the truth. John chapter 14. So his followers are supposed to be totally and radically different from those who follow Satan and the world. There are two things that I would like to end with. What is essential or central truth? What is it? Truth about the person and work of Christ. That's absolutely essential. Absolutely essential. It's important. Truth about holiness. Holiness is absolutely necessary. In 1 John chapter 2, the one who says he knows God but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, Paul says, I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is seriously and sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a drunkard or swindler, with such men do not even eat. Share the gospel with them. Ask and invite them to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, but don't have a lot of fellowship with them. Don't even eat with them. Now, I say, I, probably a lot of people say that's rather harsh, but the Bible is not harsh. It's true, and it's necessary for us to follow. So, dear friends, the call for us is to be holy. How can we be holy? Well, we're, we're filled by the Spirit of God, and He's given us His revelation from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. So it means that for us to be holy, we need to know the Word of God. We need to study the Word of God. We need to meditate upon the Word of God. We need to look at the laws of God, uh, whether it's uh, Deuteronomy 5 or uh, Exodus chapter 20 or looking at uh, Psalm 1 or Psalm 19 or one Psalm, Psalm 139. The law of God, it's, it's perfect, reviving the soul. So we need to be people and students of the Word of God. We need to be holy, for without holiness, we will not enter into the kingdom of God. So holiness is important. The work of Christ is essential. Holiness is essential. Those two are absolutely necessary. And the last thing is the reward for those who kept the faith in that city dominated by Satan and his minions doing his bidding. He promises them hidden manna. And, and can look back to the Old Testament when the people left Egypt. How did God provide for them during those years wandering in the desert? He provided. They didn't have farms. They didn't have cattle. They didn't have anything. God provided for them for those years. Food, water. He provided 
clothes that would never wear out, shoes that would never wear out. God provided for them. For them. He promised them, and he did it. And he also promises us that we will, uh, we will never go hungry. And uh, in, in, uh, you look at, uh, at uh, the Lord's Prayer. What is the fourth petition? Lord, give us today our daily bread. He's going to give us daily bread, everything that we need to sustain our lives, food, clothing, and all the other things work so that we can have a life that's sustained properly. He's going to provide for that, and he's also going to lead us into a land of new heavens and new earth uh, as well. So the Lord is going to provide for us here in this world. And he also says that they will receive a white stone. And this is kind of a, in the ancient Near East, when there was a, uh, a problem that had to be adjudicated, if someone was guilty, they received a black stone. If someone was innocent, they received a white stone. And so in a sense, God has given his people a white stone. We're innocent now because of what Christ did for us at the cross. And so we're innocent, and in that innocence, we will have a white stone. We will enter into the new heavens and new earth. And, and, receive a new name. Isaiah 62, verses 2 and 3. You shall be called by a new name for the mouth of the Lord will give you. You shall be come and receive a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord Almighty, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Not guilty. We're acquitted. So what is God's will for the church in the study of the three churches thus far? God's will for us is that we love him. I think we quoted the uh, Westminster Larger Catechism tonight. We're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. So he wants us, demands that we love him. And he also tells us that we need to suffer bravely, and that's what the second church went through. They suffered, and those who withstood the suffering bravely is pleasing to the Lord. And lastly, he wants us to believe in him and hold on to the truth. This is what Paul writes to Timothy. Contend for the truth that once for all was entrusted to the saints. Jude 3, guard what has been entrusted to us, and we will do this in love. So those things that we're supposed to do, love him, suffer, as we say that we are to deny ourselves, take up the cross and follow Jesus. That means suffering, bearing the cross, and also to believe in him and hold fast to the truth. Don't receive anything else except the truth. Practice love, show love, and God is pleased. And those who do it will live forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you um, 
even though sometimes it's hard to take for a lot of people in terms of uh, the Lord uh, exacting vengeance against the unbeliever and those who are living a life of depravity and are doing the work of the evil one and are leading people astray, Lord. But we thank you for the justice of God, but we thank you also that you show us mercy and grace and that by your mercy and grace and the finished work of Jesus Christ, that we are forgiven sinners and that we will receive a new name and we will be accounted as acquitted before a sovereign and a holy God. So Lord, we thank you for this portion of scripture. Help us to love you, Lord, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us to be willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. And Lord God, help us to never sway from the truth, but always speak the truth in love. Speak it. Speak it rightly, fully, powerfully, but do it in the manner in which Jesus Christ speaks his love to his people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.